From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is the Eurovision News Podcast. This is a story about spies. About Russian spies at a time when war is waged in Europe. A classic story of nighttime van surveillance, of scary encounters with armed men while out at sea, of clandestine meetings with European counterintelligence officers. It is a story of journalists chasing leads, exchanging secret messages across four different countries, and building homemade technical devices to expose what the Kremlin wouldn't like you to know. Hello, I am Belen Lopez Garrido, and this is the Eurovision News Podcast. A few weeks ago, a group of Nordic news organizations published an investigation into what they have called Russia's hybrid war. Journalists from public service broadcasters from Norway, Finland, Sweden and Denmark worked together for over a year researching the ways in which they say the Russian state is waging a parallel war using non-conventional warfare such as disinformation campaigns, covert surveillance operations on fishing and scientific ships, and flat-out espionage carried by diplomatic staff posted in embassies around Europe. The result of this year-long investigation was a three-part TV documentary series called Putin's Shadow War and a series of podcasts and online news articles. One of the journalists involved in the investigation, Frederick Hugo Ledegaard team from the public broadcaster DR in Denmark, is joining us today to talk about the fascinating and risky journey that took a team of international reporters into the depths of the Russian intelligence activities in the Nordic countries. Frederick Hugo, hello and thank you so much for being with us today. Against the backdrop of the conflict in Ukraine, Let's just start by defining what we mean here when we say Russia is waging a hybrid war. Yeah, so of course it's a very physical and um, concrete war that's happening in Ukraine right now. But what our sources and experts we have talked to says is Russia is raging a hybrid war in uh, the rest of Europe and of course in the Nordic countries as well. And um, some call it a Cold War 2.0. So it's a war you can't see in the same way as a physical war as the one happening in Ukraine. But the hybrid war as a concept is using cyber weapons, hacking, disinformation, espionage on land and on sea, seabed warfare. It's this hybrid, it's this di different kinds of warfare it's, it's utilizing. And it's, uh, if you don't look at it, you can't see it. I see. The, the, the investigation touches upon a number of different ways, as you were saying, that this hybrid war is being uh, played out all over Europe. Uh, there's the covert surveillance operations of the fishing and the scientific ships, the spies in the diplomatic missions, and the questions raised over Russia's role in the sabotage of the Nord Stream uh, pipelines. But I'm interested also in knowing what was the genesis of the investigation. I would like us to listen to a short clip, um, actually from the, Fed, the first podcast um, in your series, that sort of sets the scene um, of why you started looking at this. We have a major autocratic military power and nuclear power uh, arising, gaining strength and starting to operate in a, in a new way. 
So there is a, I think there is a global story here that needs to be told. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how or why did you decide to start looking into the role of these operations um, in the Nordic countries? Uh, was It doesn't look like it was a specific lead uh, or a tip that you were uh, following. Uh, how did it come about? Yeah, so actually, um, when you usually have like an international investigative collaboration, you usually have a leak or a source or something very specific to start from. But here we, we didn't have anything. It was actually, I think we were just really uh, affected about the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I think many people that isn't like uh, specifically experts in Russia and international politics were, I think everyone was surprised, but this really opened the eyes of what Russia has plans. And we hadn't looked in Denmark very specifically at Russia. Of course, we followed the disinformation in, in United States in 2016, especially. We followed the Russian involvement in uh, Brexit. We have seen different kinds of Russian operations, but I think in Denmark and in the Scandinavian general, we have kind of a self-image that we are not that important. So why should they focus on us? But something happened here. We thought we need to investigate this. We are not foreign correspondents. We can't go to the war and cover it. Uh, some of us, especially my colleague Nils, had like the urge to do that. But that's not his speciality. It's not our speciality. So we can investigate. And we decided to do that and just see what can we find if we uh, investigate Russia's covert operations in, in the Nordic countries. And I think when we started out, it would be really interesting for us just to uncover one spy or one specific case but yeah one year later we have 38 spies that we name uh, a long list of operations that we've uncovered and uh, some very interesting leads so it, it turned out to be much bigger than we thought. Indeed and uh, one of the most interesting aspects I find of, of this journalistic work is precisely this collaboration between four different national broadcasters. Um, I'm curious to know how you organized this. Was it a conscious decision at the management level of like, let's all get together? Or was it more like an organic process based on, I don't know, personal contacts between journalists or? So um, we quickly found out that maybe when, when Russia and probably other also foreign states look at Denmark, for example, where I'm sitting at, they don't look at Denmark specifically. They look at Scandinavia or the North. So they look at Denmark, uh, Iceland, Sweden, Norway, Finland, as like uh, we have almost the same kind of societies. So it makes sense to look at us as a, as a specific thing. So stuff that's happening in Denmark is probably also having, happening in Sweden. So first we started contacting some Swedish colleagues at Uppra Granskning, and um, one of uh, the journalists in Denmark knew some, some people there. And then we contacted someone in, in Norway and then uh, Finland last. And we just thought it made sense to have it this investigation with the public broadcasters because uh, we have a lot of investigative resources. We can publish in TV, in podcast, radio, web. This story can uh, determine where to publish it, not the other way around. And so we thought if we pull our forces together, we probably can find out some, some interesting stuff. So it made really good sense. 
Yes, and you did find some very interesting stuff. Um, I'd like us now to listen to another uh, clip from the podcast that illustrates a little bit uh, what we're talking about here. Hi, guys. We have some very interesting new information that makes me think that we really need to investigate how Russia is conducting hybrid warfare online. Tell us a little bit of uh, what we're hearing here. How was the communication between yourselves? I mean, obviously, there were security concerns. So how did you organize the sharing of information, the splitting of tasks, uh, the leads that you could find that could help another journalist? Yeah, so I think there's many ways to have such a collaboration, but it was very important for us at the journalistic level that we weren't like four different investigative teams, that we were one investigative team. So every time we found something new, we shared it in our Signal group, the encrypted uh, app Signal. And usually we did it through sound messages uh, because we, if you were on your way from a meeting with a source, it was quicker to do it with the audio. And you could also have like the... We also thought it could be interesting to to document the, the journey. And I think that's what makes our podcast series Cold Front so unique that we have over 300 sound messages not recorded after, uh, but recorded like the second after we find something interesting. And that was kind of a way to leave the digital world a little bit because we are very far away from each other, uh, not like in a global perspective, but they're still pretty far to Stockholm from here. But So we could hear our voices and make it even more like one investigative team. And that, that was something that was a bit hard in the beginning, but I think we, we managed to, to do it. So I've been sitting and looking at Norwegian data and people in Norway have been looking at Swedish data. And that's, that's also been quite difficult sometimes with the language language barrier, although we can understand each other a, a bit, but not like perfectly. Yeah, It's it's an amazing experience. And really that uh, you can feel that immediacy of these uh, audio notes uh, and, and uh, you know, the emotion and the excitement when somebody finds a lead and the other person reacts almost in real time is something that definitely you can't get with email um, or with other uh, means of communication. There's actually a lot, or I found in the investigation, that comes from very good and even privileged access to intelligence sources in European secret and intelligence services. And obviously, you have some very good leads in there. But there is also a big role played here by you specifically uh, in terms of using information coming from OSINT or open source intelligence, which you combined with some very crafty handmade technological tools. I was fascinated by the story of the crocodile hunters uh, and their role in uncovering Russian surveillance of Danish officials. Tell us a little bit how you found yourself in the back of a van chasing fake mobile phone reception towers. <laughs> yeah, so so we got a tip from an intelligence source that Russian agents are using these empty catchers with, with, as you say, our fake cell phone towers that can be used uh, if they are powerful enough to intercept uh, phone calls and messages of people in the area. So it would typically be uh, someone sitting in the back of a van with an empty catcher. And um, we just found out that the only way to, to catch this is to do much the same thing. So not sit with an empty catcher, but something called a crocodile hunter. So as you might know, the hacking community, although they are really skilled, they are kind of jokers. Uh, they also try to do something funny. And the guy that invented this machine to catch 
IMSI catches to catch fake cell phone towers. He called it a crocodile hunter as kind of a salute to the crocodile hunter Steve Irvin. And why he does this is because an IMSI catcher, like the at uh, something it's also called is a stingray and Steve Irwin was killed by a stingray. So that's kind of a complicated joke, but that's the hacking world for you there. But we got access to this tool and needed to drive around Copenhagen. So we thought it would be interesting to drive to embassies, to the intelligence services and to different political buildings to see if we could catch anyone using IMSI catches. So not just the Russians, but that was just the, the specific tip we received. And uh, we actually got a hit, uh, we thought. Uh, so when you get a, get a hit in this program, a black skull pops up as an icon on your computer. So me and my colleague Nils just calls at our photographer that's outside of the van to jump in. Nils jumps up on, on the front seat and we just need to drive because it looks like it's a bit north. So yeah, that we are in the middle of uh, Copenhagen traffic, uh, driving in a van, maybe uh, close close to the speed limit. But um, yeah, we didn't see it again. And actually, later we find out that it probably wasn't an MC catcher. We have experts to look at it. It was probably something else that we don't know. But the reason we are able to tell this story is that we at a later point receive from different intelligence sources a confirmation that Russia has indeed at a specific big political event in Denmark used an, an IMSI catcher. They drove around in a vehicle, tried to intercept phone calls and messages and found out who attended this political meeting. And later on, the Norwegian intelligence service has confirmed that Russia has the same capacity in Oslo. So indeed, again, a, a crossing of like old journalistic practice of OSINT on the one side, technology on the other, but also cross-checking yeah, uh, with other sources and getting... Definitely. So I think if you are a journalist and you want to investigate if, like a, a murder case, you would probably look at how do detectives work and be inspired by this and m mix it with the journalistic method, of course. And here we're investigating intelligence officers and intelligence services. So obviously we are inspired by them and they very much use this open source intelligence on the one hand and human intelligence on the other hand. So I think we've been able to mix these very well with the journalistic method. Which offers the, the confirmation that you need, especially when you're looking at, uh, at such uh, delicate topics. There were also some very tense uh, moments uh, during this year and during this uh, this investigation. And I'd like now uh, to share uh, one of them. Uh, let's just listen to another short clip and, and we'll be right back. I can see crew members, two guys now, two men staring at us. Wow, they're looking at us. This is really a strange situation. What Nils realizes Middle. is that one of the crew members has an assault rifle around his neck. Give here. And he's looking directly at him. And he can get to the sink possible. So what we have just heard is uh, how uh, one of your colleagues found himself across an armed man aboard a Russian ship. 
um, which was supposed to be a, a ship that was a fishing ship or scientific ship, but in fact, you discovered was uh, up to no good and doing some covert um, surveillance operations. How did you leave it personally? This is just an example of what uh, transpires as well as some very tense and stressful um, operation. How did you leave it personally knowing that you were dealing with potential Russian intelligence operatives? Were you worried about your safety at some point? I think we've been very um, focused on the security aspect of this investigation from the beginning. But we also in this team have a lot of experience working with stories about Danish intelligence and the American intelligence. So we have a lot of experience in working securely. And I think this is just another example of this. As we've seen in this investigation, it seems like the Russian intelligence services have some very specific operations going on. And of course, these are, are worrying. But um I think we are used to as as journalists to to work in this area where actors don't want what we are going to publish to get out. So we've been focused on the security, but it's not like we've been yeah scared. I think probably Nils when he was out in a small rubber boat in Danish waters and this guy uh, with a balaclava and uh, a huge vest and and this AK-12 or AK-15 assault rifle around his neck. I think probably he was a bit scared there, yeah. <laughs> uh, which makes good sense. He, he sent a sound message just, just after where I also, when I listened to it, was, yeah, uh, that was a unique experience, but there's not been other situations like that, thankfully. Thankfully. You, you all worked on this for about a year, which is, you know, a long period, um, of time was was there a moment when you thought we got it we're, we're ready to publish this is what we were looking for was there a smoking gun uh, and what was it for you if there was one I think the really difficult part of this investigation is that we are investigating hybrid war which is like 10 different things uh, that's the, the the difficult part about it so there was maybe a point where we had a really good story about seabed warfare but we were far away from having our good story with disinformation. And when we got our disinformation story, maybe the seabed warfare story had uh, developed. So it was so many stories that it was really hard to keep track of. So um, I think if we have continued for six more months, we would have even, even more stories. So I think at some point we just thought now we have so much knowledge that we can't sit on this anymore. It's important that this get out. It's something people discuss. People discuss the Nord Stream mystery. People discuss uh, Russian ships. People discuss Russian intelligence officers still working in Stockholm. So that's there was just some things we needed to get out quickly. I think in the best of worlds, we'd have three or six more months to edit the TV documentary and, and the podcast series. But we, we couldn't sit on it anymore. <laughs> but uh, I still think uh, it's... And it's it's a, some good documentaries out there. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's never enough time to edit. No. The story <laughs> did have a big international impact. Um, we here at the EBU, we shared it with members and it was picked up by dozens of news organizations who did radio, TV and online versions of it. How have you experienced the reaction to it, both on the official side, um, Nordic countries or Russian uh, officials, but also the audience? 
Um, so if we should start with Russia, of course, or not of course, but Russia went out and disagreed with our story. Of course, we have a lot of stories. So some stories they didn't comment. Some was commented by the the Russian ambassador in Norway. Some were commented by the foreign ministry. Someone was commented by the presidential uh, spokesperson in Russia. But the story of it is that they completely disagree with everything we have published and they say it's misinformation campaign orchestrated by Western intelligence services. And um, yeah, so of course we (laughs) deny that we are like free independent investigative journalists that can investigate whatever we want. But uh, yeah, that's the the Russian reaction and um, they have made some some pretty um, concrete statements saying that the people behind this, and I think they're pointing to what they mean is the intelligence services are reaching a point of no return in their relationship to to Russia, whatever that means. But uh, we have received all kinds of reactions in in our own countries and, and around the world. We have seen a lot of interest in this, which is what we really wanted to to see. We wanted to have people debate this. I think uh, what our sources tell us is that this is not new, actually. It, for us, it feels new, this what they called a Cold War 2.0. It feels new, but in some parts it's happened since the late 90s or, or early uh, 2000s. It's something that's been going on for a long time. So let's discuss it. Let's get it out in the open. And um, I think we've really done that. And I have family members, friends, and people I don't know who have contacted me with questions and comments. And some are very positive and some are negative. I think there's a lot of emotions in this as well. Um, but it's been really good to see the discussion flourish. Mm-hmm. And what's been the, the, because as you mentioned, I mean, some of these things are not new in the sense that it's not the first time that uh, diplomatic staff are actually exposed as doing something other than, you know, diplomatic services um, or, you know, flat out spionage. You identified up to 38 um, people. Did I get the number? It's 38. Yes. Yeah. 38 people who were involved um, in espionage. You named them. Um, you were able uh, tell us a little bit how you were able to actually prove uh, something that I think everybody suspects at one point or another. Yeah, so we um, actually, our Swedish colleagues received something we uh, call the magic list. They had an intelligence source they met in a secret location where they received a list of more than 10 names of Russian people working in the embassy in Stockholm. And on this list, everyone on it should be Russian intelligence officers. So, of course, this was not enough, but this was the first thing we received. And we thought, wow, we need to look look further into this. So uh, we got in contact to Dasha Center, which is an investigative organization uh, working specifically about with stories about Russian uh, intelligence services funded by Katakowski, this former Russian oligarch. And we work together with them and they have probably the world's biggest collection of leaked databases in Russia. So what we did, what we handed them this magic list and we handed them the list of all the Russian diplomats that were expelled last year and the list of Russian diplomats working in the Nordic countries right now. 
And um, then we started to investigate this together with them. And uh, then they were able to, for example, find that a specific Russian diplomat had an address registered at a GRU, so the Russian Military Intelligence Service, one of their dormitories, where you can only have an address there if you are a GRU officer. And um, you can have a passport issued by SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service. And um, then uh, we started to investigate this. And in the end, we had 38 names. Yeah. Incredible. And of course, we talked with intelligence sources about this as well and got confirmation uh, about this uh, from, from multiple sources as well. Yeah. Finally, I want to know, what is the one that got, that got away? Which one of the leads would you have liked to have more time, more resources to investigate further? Yeah, okay. So I think actually these 38 names here. So for it's just names. I think for a couple of them, we have the stories of what they have been doing. So one of them recruited a scientist working at the Danish Technical University who's actually now convicted. Yeah, he's sentenced to a prison sentence for spying against a Danish company and this university. And we have one of them who recruited a, uh, a spy in Sweden. But for most of these 38 names, we still don't know what they have been doing here. Some of them have been attending some military conferences, some cyber conferences, and we have like these vague ideas of what they have been doing. But they are top trained to recruit spies, to recruit informants, to conduct operations. And we still don't know what they did. And that I really still really want to know more about that. Well, there's there's still time. And if you want to hear more about Putin's shadow war, uh, the documentaries and the Cold Front podcasts are available on the news platforms of NRK Norway, Wiley Finland, SVT Sweden and DR Denmark. Thank you very much for your time today, uh, Frederick Hugo, and we look forward to seeing your next investigation. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Lonesser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.